0: And Merry Christmas Eve bosses for those of you who are listening to this episode in real time Tis the season to focus on friends and family and food and fun and love and all those wonderful holiday vibes. So I'm sending you my very best from Bossed Up. We are so appreciative of you and your loyal listenership really helps make the show possible. Now, to round out our Best of Bossed Up series this week, we are diving into today's interview with Lucy Fink, who is talking about what it feels like to feel unqualified. If your New Year's resolutions have you feeling a little intimidated by yourself, today's episode is perfect for you. And keep in mind, you know, we don't need to know everything to know that we want to move forward in the direction of our deepest desires. So if you are struggling with feelings of, I don't know, being an imposter or feeling like maybe you don't have what it takes to make this next year as great as you want it to be, today's episode's for you and today's episode is full of real nuggets of wisdom that can help you take your dreams whether those are ambitions that are personal or professional or whatever to the next level so happy happy holidays to every one of you let's jump into today's interview with lucy fink all about feeling unqualified let's hear straight from suzanne who's got an all-too-relatable career conundrum for today's episode Hi, Emily. This is Suzanne from New Haven, Connecticut.
1: I've been in school for a very long time towards a specific scientific career path, and I've been considering um, some alternative paths. But my question for you is,
0: should I take the traditional path and try it out and see how it works before going on something alternative? And should I wait to be fired if I'm not good enough for that? Or should I try to find a different career path? I'm not sure. I'm having a hard time figuring it out. To break down Suzanne's excellent career conundrum, I am so excited to welcome Lucy Fink into the studio today. Thanks so much for being here, Lucy.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: So, I did a little follow-up with Suzanne to get some more details on her question, and here's what she told me. She's been pursuing her PhD in organic chemistry at a top-tier university. She is calling in from New Haven, Connecticut after all. And <laughs> She recently has started to weigh her options between a more traditional kind of what she considers expected career trajectory in research and development for a pharmaceutical company versus what she describes as her great passion for chemical safety, government regulations, and writing editorials about science in the news and everyday life. She's especially written on issues like the Flint water crisis and chemical accidents. So it sounds like she's torn between what she considers a safe and almost expected career path that she's very qualified for versus pursuing what she thinks of as an alternative career path in the sector around advocacy. So I'm so excited to have you in studio today, Lucy, because it sounds a little bit familiar knowing what I know about your career trajectory. Would you draw some comparisons there?
1: Yes, sure. So I was an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins University studying neuroscience. I was pre-med and I went in thinking that I was going to be a doctor. I really had no idea exactly what type of doctor I wanted to be. I didn't really have a clear idea of why I wanted to do that. I think my only real reasoning for why I personally thought I wanted to be a doctor was that I enjoyed watching medical shows on TV, (laughs) and I really liked watching surgery, and I would pull up YouTube and watch the goriest procedures, and I initially started pre-med, and it really wasn't until I met a few other students and had been there for a year and talked to people about why they wanted to go into medicine and why they wanted to be doctors And I just realized that I had it all backwards. And, you know, you can't want to be a doctor because you just think it's cool to watch surgery videos. And I also had this on-camera entertainment passion, and I kept telling my mom that I wanted to be a doctor on TV, like a Sanjay Gupta, (laughs) Right. which is not really a field. Well, it's a tricky field to find
0: yourself in, isn't it? But here you are, 25 years old, With a hit show for Refinery 29, Try Living with Lucy. And that's just one of many platforms that you're working on and ways that you're sharing your message with viewers who are loving your videos on YouTube now. So you've gone from consumer on YouTube to producer to creator. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey to Refinery 29?
1: Sure. So after graduation, once I had already switched out of medicine and I switched over to the creative writing side and I was making video content for Johns Hopkins. I was hosting a YouTube show for the admissions office that was sort of a travel channel-esque design show that I produced and hosted without ever having done either of the two. After about years and years of doing that at school, I had the opportunity to be on the Today Show as sort of a millennial spokesperson answering questions about teens and parents, And so by the time I graduated college, I had this whole video reel showing me on camera, both in live segments and produced segments and topics I had come up with and a whole range of ideas. And I sort of wanted to chase this on camera dream, but I didn't exactly know how to do it. I was under the impression that if I wanted to do something like what I'm doing now, the only real way to do that would be to get an agent and to be pitched out to hosting gigs. And I really wanted to be in this lifestyle space that's a little bit more informational, but still entertaining and educational and younger. And I just kept telling people, I just wanted to be making content that if me and my friends came across it on social media, we would stop to watch it. But I I didn't exactly know how to verbalize what that was. And of course, jobs like what I have now weren't really a thing. A couple of years ago. I essentially was working at Ogilvy and Mather as a producer and very fortunately the chief creative officer at Ogilvy ended up moving over to work at Refinery29 and she had remembered a couple of conversations we had where I showed her my work samples and I told her what I wanted to do and very fortuitously she remembered me and asked me if I wanted to come meet with the video team at Refinery. And it was completely a right place, right time kind of situation where I went in, the video team was very small and just developing and they were incredibly receptive to young producers coming in who wanted to be hands-on in every aspect of the videos, come up with the ideas, produce them, write them, host them, work on editing, and it was a perfect match from the beginning. Mm. I want to
0: jump in there because it sounds like your experience is similar to Suzanne's conundrum in that she wasn't quite sure exactly the job that she was aiming for. Maybe the job she's aiming for to be a scientist on social advocacy policy issues, you know, creating compelling media and writing about those issues. Maybe that job doesn't quite exist yet, or maybe the pathway to making it profitable or sustainable for herself is unclear. So did you ever struggle with feeling unqualified in that way? Did you ever struggle with thinking, here's a safe path I could take, you know, the traditional trajectory with an agent pitching me for entertainment sort of gigs that I might not love versus a more what I would consider a little more scrappy of a finding your way to really staying in the driver's seat in your career? Did you ever struggle with feeling like maybe I'm just not cut out for this? Maybe I'm not qualified?
1: So it's funny that you phrase it that way because I saw it a little bit differently. I actually saw the whole going off with the agent thing as the less safe path because Hmm. in my mind, that was the path that I could go down that wouldn't give me a stable salary. And to be honest, when it came to on-camera situations, I have never taken a class on how to be on camera. I've never had a coach. I've never been trained. And because of that, it always just came naturally to me, the ability to talk in front of a camera, whether it was live or not. And because of that, I was very convinced from the beginning that it was not a skill. Like, I, I didn't think that it was something that I could do that was special. And because of that, I sort of thought going down the path of pursuing this was not really a good career path. I felt like, sure, maybe... Some people have had big hits where they've been put on a show and then they become a big star. But I knew that that was few and far between. And I felt like signing on with an agent was a very risky opportunity where I maybe wouldn't get anything cool and I wouldn't be able to afford to live in New York on my own. And because of that, my decision to work at Ogilvy instead of signing with the agent was my way of taking the safer route because I said to myself, You know, I think a more secure career path would be agreeing that being on camera is not necessarily that big of a skill. And I really want to learn a skill. So the skill I want to learn is being a producer. And I decided that being behind the scenes and learning how to actually put a video together and knowing all the steps that go into production was more of a skill than just being able to talk on camera. I, of course, now know today, having had my experience of being on camera and seeing other people do it and being in many situations, I now admit that I have a skill
0: of being (laughs) on camera. I would hope
1: so. It took a little while for me to realize because I was so, I I had it in my head that being a producer and working behind the scenes was a very strong skill that not everyone has, but I didn't want to go that route of just sort of Floating in the ether with an agent and doing something that I didn't feel was that strong of a skill.
0: Well, it's interesting because it almost sounds to me like the lesson for Suzanne here is that maybe you don't have to choose one or the other. Maybe you can take the safe bet. Maybe you can take the more stable career trajectory at first and then find your way to making your passion your paycheck right, to make your passion yield a paycheck. So what were you doing while you were working at Ogilvy that prepared you to become the on-camera talent for Refinery? I I know in your TEDx talk, you really talk about making trying things the new doing things. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience at Ogilvy that prepared you for Refinery29 and and what you learned from that?
1: Yeah. So while I was at Ogilvy, which I guess was my way of deciding to have a more stable career path and learn the skill and the art of production. I was very adamant about keeping up my creative juices and making sure that I was still trying new things and exploring. And I still didn't know exactly, even within the field of production, exactly what I wanted to produce. Thankfully, Ogilvy was a very creative environment that gave me free range to sort of like explore and try new things. And They encouraged all employees to pick up tools and just make things. There was one particular day I was just very underworked and I didn't have anything going on. I picked up a camera and I went into one of our studios and I just started shooting what I thought was a series of photos. It turned into basically a stop motion video. And this was something that I had never done before. I had never thought to do. I just completely fell into it by playing with the technology and it was the first time in my life kind of like the way an artist all of a sudden realizes their passion and starts going crazy making the same type of art. (laughs) I discovered this video format and was like oh my god this is the coolest thing I've ever done. I've never been so amazed by how a final video has come out and mind you it took hours and hours to shoot this video and then once I pulled it into the editing software I didn't know what I was doing there and it took me hours and hours to edit so it must have been a six hour day of me shooting and editing this thing that I had no idea what was going to come out of it but right I was really just following Ogilvy's message of being a maker and trying things and after this one video came out, I posted it on social media and my audience, like which was just my friends at the time, seemed really enthralled by it. Everyone seemed to like it as much as I did. And I was super excited to be sharing, for the first time since college, sharing something that I was really proud that I had made. And I started churning out these videos at such a high volume that it was leading to a little bit of social media growth. But the biggest thing that came from it was... A brand emailed me asking, how much do you charge for these videos? We'd love for you to make one for our Mother's Day campaign. And I was totally caught off guard. Yeah. I was like, this brand wants to pay me for this (laughs) thing that I come home and do for fun. And I just remember totally making up a number. And I actually, I'll just be transparent because I think this is funny. I told the brand that I would do it for $100. And (laughs) the brand was like, I think they felt really sad that I had clearly never done this and was massively undervaluing the the art form. And the brand said, well, we have 500 if you want that.
0: Oh, my goodness. What a funny negotiation story for this audience, because we talk a lot about negotiation here and it never goes that way.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And well, I learned so much from that first one because I had brands starting to reach out to me week after week. And I first told them, okay, I charge 500 And then once I had a bunch of those, I thought, why don't I just double it and see what happens? So I told the brand, yeah. I charge 1000 When it didn't seem like a problem for brands to pay 1000 no one was giving me any pushback. I just decided I'm going to ask, what's your budget? Instead of telling you yeah. what I charge. And it turned out some brands had, you know, 5 times the budget that I was asking for and when they presented me that amount they would act like we're so sorry we don't have a lot we only have 5000.
0: <laughs> well, it's such a wild wild west cuz it's it's an art form
1: really. It's funny that you share
0: how this really was a side hobby that became the qualifications through which you could land a full-time job as a creator, as a maker. Because just this past Sunday, the New York Times Magazine had a really interesting column by Katie Waldman all about, does having a day job mean making better art? That was the title of this really interesting piece in which she basically goes on to say, listen, we think of artists as these recluses who are monomaniacal in their focus, like a Lucy who is just making stop motion videos 24-7, 365 days a year. But, you know, the West is basically forgetting that the Renaissance person used to be the typical artist. We think of, like, Leonardo da Vinci, who held down at least a dozen occupations. And now... Tom Hanks composes short stories and we make fun of him. Or Steve Martin tries his hand at a novella. James Franco makes a run at poetry. She asks in her piece, why do we rain down suspicion on those who seem ruled by competing creative impulses? In this moment when our pieties about identity are unraveling to admit more nuance, what's wrong with letting people do two things at once? Right. And I feel like that's your story in a nutshell. Like you were you know, clocking in nine to five and you also had some freedom and used your freedom and and free time to really pursue an art form that later would become your career. Is that right?
1: Totally. And I I have to say, I think not only financially was I able to be supported with my full-time job that not only allowed me to have the funds to actually buy the tools and props that I needed to pursue my hobby. So not only that side of things, but just from a creative standpoint, I found that having another job that maybe wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing all day helped build that drive for me to run home and create the stop motion videos in the little amount of time that I had off. And Mm. perhaps if I had no full-time job and I was just sitting at home making stop motion videos, I wouldn't be as motivated. It's the classic case of how you seem to get more things done when you're busier. Yes. And when you have a day off, you wind up doing nothing.
0: That's such a great point. So I want to ask you about sunk costs for a second, because part of what I think is driving Suzanne into a state of frustration here is this idea that she's sunk so much time, energy, and undoubtedly money into pursuing her PhD. So she's pursued her PhD for so long that makes her feel really qualified to pursue R&D in the pharmaceutical industry. But there's a part of her, maybe a different part of her, maybe like her heart is sort of calling her to pursue writing, to pursue advocacy. But she sunk all of this time and energy and effort into a totally different skill set. Have you ever felt like you've sunk a ton of time into a project that ended up being not usable or you ended up pivoting in a different direction? And how do you reconcile that feeling of, you know, should I just keep going down this path because I've been going down it for a while or should I change things up?
1: Right. I think that's definitely a tough thing and totally understandable. I think it's not quite the same parallel, but something I can think of is in my industry and in the, the space where you're working with clients and brands, a huge part of the everyday is getting RFPs from brands where they want you know a request for a pitch and they're reaching out to a ton of publishing companies and they want you to send them what you can give them for their budget. And Mm -hmm. we throw so much time and energy. You know, sometimes our sales team is working for weeks to build these pitches and get them out and go back and forth and sit in creative meetings where we're just coming up with idea after idea. And I would say one out of 100 of those pitches winds up getting sold. Wow. And even with Try Living with Lucy, I obviously started it just as an editorial series And we've had maybe one out of 100 wasn't the exact ratio because there have been maybe between 70 and 80 episodes of the series so far. And we've sold three of them. Yeah. And I just I know how many times I've sat and gotten excited about an idea and thrown time that I could have been shooting something editorially into planning an idea that just dies. And the way I think you have to think of it, I I know it's a lot tougher when it's monetary investment and when you paid to go to graduate school to get your phd it's harder to justify it sort of seems like you're flushing that money down the toilet but i don't think of it that way i i think every single time you ideate or in her case every single time you take a class and learn something it's not wasted knowledge even if you don't decide to follow that career path and work in the pharmaceutical industry there's got to be some way you can apply the skills that you're learning as a phd candidate to whatever you wind up doing in life and yes. tons of people that i work with in the digital media industry came from the most bizarre career backgrounds or schooling backgrounds you know people were art history majors some people came from television but others didn't you know never worked in tv ever and came from marketing and I personally think that the people that came from the most diverse backgrounds and have different ideas floating in their heads have the most to offer in this field. And especially in the case of this question, she seems very passionate about this potential new field with advocacy. And if she's passionate about it, that passion is going to translate in some way and be a really positive thing for her. And the fact that she has a PhD is probably going to make her more credible in whatever she's doing. It's not going to (laughs) hurt. No, never going to hurt. So
0: on that same note, in a recent Forbes interview, you said that you don't think anyone should have a five-year plan for their career right now. Would you say that to Suzanne (laughs) and and why?
1: Well, I say that to people, and I I guess I'm mainly talking about my industry because I know how fast it changes, and I know – how crazy it was when I started at Refinery in 2015. It made me realize how the industry changes so fast and new jobs pop up and things are removed and it doesn't really do you good to pick a specific job that you want to have in five years in the digital industry.
0: And I would argue that the way that disruption is affecting the job market writ large, we're seeing those kinds of ripples Impact lots of different industries, right? We know that self driving trucks, if they do become mainstream, are going to completely eliminate millions of jobs when it comes to cross country truck drivers. So, you know, disruption and agility are going to be norms for all kinds of career paths because of the impact that technology is having. So, I think your experience is totally applicable across industries and having the agility to try something new even when you're not feeling 100% qualified, I feel like that's the new normal. But it also comes with the potential, I would say, even a higher potential for failure along the way. So how do you deal with that fear of, I'm not qualified for this, or this could go totally awry, I might fall totally on my face (laughs) if I try something new? I mean, you've tried in one of your you know, five day challenges, you tried being a street entertainer, which I thought was like really good practice in that art for him.
1: Uh, yeah. And I mean, when it comes to the five day challenges, those for sure, I am open to trying almost anything and open to failing at almost anything because I feel it's just it's so important to get out and try new things and explore and not only for the purpose of finding a career path or know, finding your new life's calling. But I can't tell you how many of those challenges have just educated me on so many different topics that I never even thought twice about. And now they're such important parts of my life and my beliefs and things that I do every day.
0: It's incredible, though. It sounds like, you know, the risk of failing miserably is often Worth it or part of the process to get to these huge learning opportunities, right? To really transform your own way of living.
1: If I actually think about risk in terms of career, back in 2015 when I made the switch to refinery, I I remember sort of in addition to being afraid of going down the agent route, I think I was really afraid to go down that route because of the uncertainty, but also because. I was a little bit afraid of failure. And I was afraid of trying to build this on-camera role and having it not be successful in the way that I envisioned it. Yeah. And so in some ways, every single day at my job at Ogilvy, I felt like I had sort of backed away from my dream. So when you walked into that interview,
0: you know, this was your chance, right? When you're sitting down talking to Refinery29, this is your chance to actually seize the moment that, that you find yourself in and, and be unabashed and unafraid of pursuing And How did you make your case in that interview?
1: So funny, because when I think back to it now, I think, oh, my gosh, that interview was everything. Like, that got me to exactly where I am today. And if anything had gone awry or differently, perhaps this wouldn't be. But at the time, I actually, believe it or not, was pretty happy with my job at Ogilvy. And I think... Maybe I still had some of that fear of failure when it came to the on-camera thing, and maybe I just didn't want to get too excited, but I sort of, I remember very clearly when the CCO at Ogilvy moved to Refinery, she called me on my work line at Ogilvy before she left to tell me she was moving to Refinery29, and it wasn't until two, three months later, she sent me a Facebook message once she had been there for a little while, and she was like, "All right, I'm just gonna get into it. I think you should work at Refinery29, like the Boom. the team that the video team is doing exactly what you said you wanted to do. They're creating content. It's targeted towards young women. I think you'd be a perfect fit." And I I felt really flattered that she reached out because she was the COO of Refinery at the time. She moved right. over to be the COO, and I, I was, you know, when I met her, I was like an intern at Ogilvy, and she was the chief creative officer. So I always had major respect for her and I was so honored that she thought this but at the same time I was getting a little bit deeper into my role at Ogilvy at the time and I was actually just transitioning out of believe it or not the production department moving to a creative role at Ogilvy where I was going to be more of the coming up with the ideas instead of actually making content and Mm. I was very excited about that. And it was all happening slowly, but it was happening. And so when she told me to come meet with them, I took the meeting because I've always been taught, just take the meeting, you never know. And I went into this meeting and it was almost, it almost became a joke amongst the people that were interviewing me that I was there to talk to them, but I didn't really, I wasn't really looking for a job. You know, the head of video sort of asked me, she's like laughing, you know, the next person came in to meet me and she's like you're never going to believe it. She's not even looking for a job and they're cracking up in the room. And she's like, "Let me ask you. What do you what do you want to do? What's your dream? What does your dream job look like?" And so I talked to her a little bit about it. I showed her some of the video formats that were like my dream series that I would love to host and produce at some point. She asked me if I would write. She just gave me like 10 minutes to write my dream job description at any company. And so I wrote this description that was like building me into the face of a company and or at least, you know, one of the faces of the company, allowing me to be a lifestyle host and produce content on a whole range of topics relevant to millennials and someone who got to make stop motion videos for internal brands and clients and just a very creative, hands-on writing, producing, working on editing, kind of 360 job. And she copied and pasted that paragraph that I wrote and just put it in a job offer.
0: (laughs) What a lesson about long-term mentorship and sponsorship, really. Like, you were clearly doing your damnedest at Ogilvy to make sure that you made a good impression. So you weren't just, like, dialing it in at your day job and running home to focus on your passion. You clearly had performed to the extent where the leader there that then ended up moving had an eye for your talent. So what a good lesson on that front as well. And I'm so glad it ended up working out because now the Internet has a lot more great content (laughs) to consume from (laughs) you. thank you. And now it's time for today's boss move of the week. Looking back on 2019, y'all have been sharing your boss moves of the year in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. And I was so delighted to see this update from Haley in our community. She wrote, I just got a promotion and a raise at my one year review for this job and successfully negotiated a maternity leave policy for myself and everyone else going forward. I'm five months pregnant, and the organization has never had one before. That is what it means to lift as you climb, Haley. Congratulations, boss. I am so inspired by the key reminder here, which is everything is negotiable. Just because you're already asking for a raise or landing a promotion and having that one-year mark conversation doesn't mean you can't ask about other Benefits, especially when those are benefits like parental leave policies that benefit you and everyone else in the world. Because if your organization doesn't currently have a policy on the books, it just takes one person to start the conversation to make that happen. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's a total boss move. So, congratulations, Haley. I'm so proud of you. You've inspired me. I want to hear from you. If you've got a boss move to share or if you are actively negotiating your benefits package or your salary or a raise or promotion in the new year, call in those boss moves to the Bossed Up podcast hotline at 910-668-BOSS or share them in the Bossed Up Courage community. Every Friday, except for the ones when I forget, (laughs) I ask for your fierce Friday check-ins in that community there. It's a great time to reflect on the week, but it's also just that time of year to reflect on the entire year. And if you want my expert guidance in helping you negotiate your benefits package, your raise, your promotion, or even a new salary offer in the new year, definitely check out the live negotiation deep dive workshop I'll be hosting on January 22nd. Space is limited. It's a very intensive step-by-step program. I will be there answering your questions live streaming online, like an intimate workshop that you might join me for in person. It's going to run at least two hours long. You can find all the details at bossstep.org slash negotiation live until next time. Keep Boston in pursuit of your purpose, y'all. And together, just like Haley, let's lift as we climb.